Hi, today I'm going to be reading Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they must have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that, may, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ God loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Here we go. If you were here last week or if you were watching online, you might remember um, watching a very short uh, video sermon that was, took place on the East Coast. And it was from Ephesians 4, through 24 about speaking the truth in love. The loving truth is that I was, I was scrambling on Saturday night last week um, on my way to the ER with a back spasm um, and a couple of bulged discs. And uh, so um, we do have a couple of amazing pastors who we could draw on in our congregation in a moment's notice, but um, 11 p.m. on Saturday night is not kind. So that's what that was about. But once we have an associate pastor, we won't have to... Um, struggle with that uh, anymore. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this was part of last week's text, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. 
So we're in a series on the book of Ephesians called One, and it is about unity. It is about finding harmony and keeping and preserving harmony in a hostile environment and in a hostile world. And last week I planned to preach about um, uh, growing in maturity as we practice humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. I had a four-part sermon that went unpreached. Today, I had planned to talk about changing our lives, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, um, the way we think, changing the way we think, the way we feel, the way we speak, and the way we act, because that's what today's text is about, the Jews and Gentiles coming together to form one new community, and the character of what that community is meant to be, it is meant to be characterized by speaking the truth, resolving anger, and using it appropriately, getting rid of bitterness, slander, being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. I had a nice four-part sermon about these things, too. But on Friday, I felt the need to pause and to go in a different direction and to address uh, the recent mass shootings and really gun violence um, more broadly. Because to talk about, this is, a, this is a sermon series about unity and finding unity in a hostile world. And any talk about unity can sound pretty hollow if it is not talked about in the context of something very real that we're facing. Like, how does a Christian community respond to mass shootings, especially um, in, uh, in schools. And so I want to take a few minutes just to talk about, maybe more than a few, maybe 20, to talk about what Jesus might say about this problem that we have in the United States. Um, let me explain, uh, br- briefly describe sort of the timeline of this problem. Um, it started maybe 23 years ago in 1999 when two teenagers walked into their high school in Colorado, in Columbine, and um, murdered 15 uh, students. Most of us are old enough to remember that event. I was in college. It was um, shocking. It was such a startling event. Um, and, And from there, then, we've seen a whole host of others that have followed. In 2006, Charles Roberts IV shot 10 Amish girls, killing five at the Nickel Mines Schoolhouse in an Amish village in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Just a year later, in April 2007, an undergraduate student at, the, at Virginia Tech University, who was a, a U.S. resident and was also from South Korea, opened fire on the campus, killing 32 people. The Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting happened on December 14th, 2012 in Newton, Connecticut, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people. 20 of the victims were children between 6 and 7 years old. On June 17th, 2015, three years later, a 21-year-old white supremacist named Dylan Roof opened fire on a black church during their Bible study, murdering nine people, all black, including the senior pastor, with a semi-automatic handgun. On June 12, 2016, just one year later, Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old man, killed 49 people and wounded 53 more in a mass shooting at Pulse Nightclub, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. 
On October 1, 2017, Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old man from Mesquite, Nevada, opened fire on the crowd attending the Route uh, 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas. From his 32nd floor suite at the Mandalay Bay Hotel, he fired more than 1,000 bullets, uh, killing 60 people, wounding 411, with the ensuing panic bringing the number of injured to 867. Just a month later, November 5, 2017, Devin Patrick Kelly, age 26, opened fire at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Kelly killed 26 people, including an unborn child, using a semi-automatic assault-style rifle. In February 2018, on Valentine's Day, 19-year-old, so this is about one year later, um, I'm sorry, just a few months later, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz opened fire on students and staff at Marjorie Douglas, Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, murdering 17 people and injuring 17 others with a Smith & Wesson semi-automatic assault-style rifle. Two weeks ago, racially driven mass shooting took place outside of Buffalo, New York at Topps Supermarket in a black community, killing 10 people who were buying groceries using a semi-automatic assault-style rifle. That same day in the afternoon, there was a shooting that took place at my friend's Presbyterian church in Southern California in my home presbytery. And then just last week on Wednesday, May 24th, 2022, 18-year-old Salvador Rolando Ramos fatally shot 19 students and two teachers and wounded 17 other people at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, in the deadliest school shooting since Sandy Hook in 2012 using a semi-automatic assault-style rifle. What would Jesus say about these things? What would Paul say to us about how we navigate these things as a community I want to recognize at the outset that this is a really hard conversation to have. And I think Paul's words in Ephesians give us some helpful instructions for how to have these conversations as a Christian community, community of faith. If I were to guess, I would guess that maybe a fourth or maybe a third of um, members of our congregation are gun owners. I don't know that. It's a stab in the dark. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but maybe it's around a third. Um, and m- maybe uh, there are a number of people, I-, I know of a couple, there are probably a number of people who are members of the National Rifle Association. And there are many others who don't own guns and don't really have a strong opinion about the matter other than the, the sense of enormous grief that all of us, no matter where we are on this issue, experience and feel after a tragedy like this. And some in our congregation are strong advocates and activists for tighter gun control. And so we're diverse in the, on this as a congregation, um, not even quite as divided as our nation is probably. Um, But what happens is, at least in a societal level, um, is that these terrible shootings happen, and we each have our go-to positions. And instead of talking to one another and trying to figure out how can we actually come up with something that might reduce the chance of this happening, we just talk past each other. And as we talk past each other, we call each other names. 
And if we don't say it out loud, we say it in our heads, in our hearts. Um, you know the NRA convention is going on this weekend in um, Houston, Texas. The timing of that convention is a terrible for them, I'm sure. I saw a poster yesterday that said that the NRA are child murderers. And then I saw a poster, um, a meme that, that from, um, from NRA folks who said that the protesters are ignorant pawns of a radical left. I know many protesters, and I don't know one of them who is an ignorant pawn of the radical left. They're intelligent. They can think for themselves. Nor, um, nor do I know any uh, gun owners or NRA members who, t who rejoice in anybody being killed. Um, they grieve over, over this. And most of them are just hunters who just enjoy hunting, and they even do so as a means to feed their family. I have a good friend who hunts to feed his family. He just got a boar, and, and there's their meat for a while. And so we, we tend to mischaracterize one another. And then in the process of laying down our carefully considered arguments, we don't listen to see if maybe that person might have something to teach me, a different perspective that I hadn't seen before. And there's, is there a way that we could come together and actually work on some real solutions? The CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, two years ago, they published their most recent um, uh, mortality data report in 2020. And it showed that there was 45,222 firearm-related deaths in the United States in 2020. There's 45,000 gun-related deaths in 2020. And this was a new peak. Um, more Americans died of gun-related injuries in 2020 than in any other year on record. What we don't know is whether that's increased in 2021 and 22, but it seems as though it has. Um, and more than half of those deaths were suicide. So nearly 8 in 10, 8, 79% of U.S. murders in 2020, that's 19,000, roughly 19,000 out of 24,000 involved a firearm. Children and teens have been particularly affected by this gun violence surge. In 2020, the number of kids fatally shot increased by more than a third from the previous year, and according to the CDC, firearm-related incidents are now the leading cause of death for children and youth, surpassing automobile accidents um, for the first time. And so that's the leading cause of death for children and youth. Each day in America, on average, 12 children die from gun violence. Another 32 are shot and injured. Something needs to be done. An estimated 4.6 million American children live in a home where at least one gun is kept unloaded, or is kept loaded and unlocked. And I've actually had an experience when my kids were little, and we went over to a friend's house, and there were four families there, and lots of little kids running around in a small little apartment, and I walked in to a game room to check on the kids and see how they were doing. And they're eight, seven, eight. And there was a loaded AR-15 right on the table, right there. And I went out 
And I got upset at the, at the father and the owner of this. And his response was, well, the safety is on. So, so, so four in four out of five shootings, at least one other person had knowledge of the attacker's plan and failed to report it. In a comprehensive school shooting study, the Secret Service Department, uh, Secret Service and Department of Education found 93% of school shooters planned the attack in advance. Almost all mass school shooters shared threatening or concerning messages or images. Children living in poverty, urban and rural, are uh, more likely to die to gun violence than their more affluent peers. About one out of five LGBTQ youth have been threatened or injured with a weapon on school property. Black youth are four times more likely to be killed with guns than their white peers. And across the, the U.S. And, and, and all of these, and there's so many more on smaller scales that have happened, it looks really scary. And these stories are awful. I think it's also helpful to know that violent crimes and the murder rates um, have actually declined by um, 50% from 1990 to 2019. Now, since 2020, it's going back up again, but it's still much lower. The, the murder rate in the United States is much lower now than it was on the whole in 1990. We've been successful at combating the murder rate in this country. Guns are a big part of our culture here in the United States. There are 329 million people in the U.S. and at least 393 million guns that we own. There's about 120 guns per 100 people. Law enforcement in the United States owns maybe about 26 to 30 million guns. So if you add up all the guns um, owned by the police departments across the U.S. plus the FBI, there are 26 to 30 million guns owned by them and 390 by civilians. That's 15 times more guns owned by civilians than all of law enforcement combined. If you look at the military, the U.S. military, um, all the branches combined own about 10 million firearms. That means that, that for every one gun owned by the military, civilians own 39 times the amount of guns. 3% of the population owns 17 or more guns. So there's, that means that there's a smaller number of, of the population that owns the majority of the guns. Um, and, and about 30% of the population owns guns. When it comes to how or why we, we acquire these guns, there, there are all sorts of different ways. For many people, they acquire guns because they're passed down in their family. Um, when my grandfather died, uh, he left his grandfather's pistol for me as a family heirloom. This was uh, from the early 1800s. It's framed in a glass case. It's not usable. Uh, my father has a, a couple of bird hunting shotguns that he got from his grandfather and his um, great, or his father and his grandfather. They're like historical artifacts, um, and I'd like to have those someday. I don't need any ammunition, but I like the historical artifacts. There are people who collect guns in this way, and there are people who like to use them just for hunting, and they enjoy sport shooting or skeet shooting. In fact, 
the first uh, day that um, Devin and I were dating in college, and, and she finally brought me to her home to meet her family in Visalia, California, Central Valley, and mostly a farming community. Um, and uh, when I met her brother and her brother-in-law and her dad, they immediately put me in the back of their pickup truck with a whole bunch of guns and said, we're going to go shooting. And I thought, okay, let's do this. And so we went and they took me out to um, some dried up aqueduct in the middle of nowhere and we shot clay pigeons. And it was really fun because these guys were skilled, they were careful, they were well trained and practiced and it was you know, out of harm's way. Of course, I was wondering if I wasn't gonna make the return trip in a body bag, but I made it. I made it, and it, we had a good time. The largest people, the, I mean, the largest reason that people report, the largest people, the largest reason that people report owning a gun is for protection. In America, men are twice as likely to own a gun as women. White men are 50% more likely to own a gun than black men. Rural Americans own more guns than Americans who live in the cities or suburbs, no surprise. And twice as many Republicans own guns as Democrats, that's no surprise, but though many Democrats do own guns. Here are two important statistics as to why I think we talk past each other and why the starting point isn't helpful. 67% um, of Americans buy guns, they say, for protection. Of the 67% of the people who buy guns, they say it's for protection. And once that person buys a gun, 89% of those people, of gun owners, say that once they buy a gun for protection, they cannot imagine life without one. So that means that if people are buying a gun because of their perception that life isn't safe without it, and I can't imagine having one, and, and, and say I'm that person, and you start talking to me about gun control, what I hear is, you want to take away my guns. And since I'm already feeling unsafe in this unsafe world, and my gun is my security that is going to protect me, you're now taking away my safety. And once I hear that, then I'm not interested in having any other conversation with you about it because I'm worried for my safety and for my family members, and I can't imagine my life without this gun from this time forward. So we've got to figure out a different way to have these conversations. Let's talk about Jesus and what he might say about this. Of course, there were no weapons in Jesus' day, or there were no guns in Jesus' day, but there were weapons. Um, people carried swords knives and daggers. And they used these things for various reasons. They, they used them as utility knives to work around the house, cutting leather, things like that, as we would. Um, they would use them for hunting, and they would use them for protection. Uh, Jesus clearly tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to turn the other cheek. Um, when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn, give them the other cheek also. He tells us to love our enemies, and so he appears to take a really nonviolent approach uh, and calls his followers to do the same, which is why it's a little surprising to me when we get to the night when Jesus celebrated his last supper with the disciples, just before his arrest, 
he says this. He's with his disciples celebrating the Last Supper. He's about to send them out, telling them that you're, you're going to be in this dangerous world, and I'm sending you out this time. I'm not going to go with you. Um, and this is what he says. But now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. He replied, it is enough. Now, mo most people really never thought about that, but the traditional interpretation is that Jesus is telling these disciples that the world is going to get violent, violent uh, people are going to attack you because of me once I leave, and it's okay for you to protect yourself against this. Um, I also want you to notice that two of the disciples during the Last Supper were carrying swords. So that means that at the Last Supper, the disciples were packing I just find that really interesting and really different than the way I imagined the Last Supper. But it just tells you that even in that day, it was common. It was common for people to carry a sword with them. And so when we ask a question like, well, what would Jesus say to us today? We see that he seems to allow for some self-protection, that some of his disciples carried around swords and he allowed that. And then to be prepared um, against for violent attacks. But it was probably not even an hour later that Jesus is with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying together. And then the high priest sends the, sent the servants to go and arrest Jesus. And this is what happens. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus who put his hand on his sword. Do you know who that was? Peter. Yes, Matthew doesn't tell us that. Only John rats him out. It was Peter who drew it and struck the slave with the high priest cutting off his ear, which tells us one thing, Peter isn't really good with a sword. Um, so, you know, that matters. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or you might have heard that as all who live by the sword will die by the sword. So on the one hand, he sort of allows them to have swords for protection but when one of it pulls it out to use it in an offensive manner, he says to put it away. I don't want you to, to rely on your sword for trust for your life. I have a friend who um, enjoys guns. Uh, I have a number of friends who enjoy guns. But I have one friend in particular who enjoys guns. And he, um, uh, he, he likes to go hunting and he likes to go to the range and he borrows his friend's gun when he goes hunting and he rents a gun when he goes to the driving range. He just says, I really like it. I really like shooting. I really like hunting, but I don't want to own a gun. And he said to me, the reason I don't want to own a gun is personal free choice. I don't have, other, I don't have problems with people owning guns, um, but if, if, I owned, if I bought a handgun for my protection, then I would feel like my security and my safety hinged on that handgun I had at my house. I would be afraid anywhere I didn't have it. And I would need to have it all the time because that would be then my object of safety and security. And for me, I desperately want that to be God and not a handgun. And so I chose not to buy a handgun. I don't mind that other people do but I chose not to. And then he quoted this scripture. He said, some trust in chariots and some in horses. These are tools of war, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
And he said, it's like I wake up every morning, and if I'm going to die today, I say, I belong to you, Lord. My life is in your hands. But I'm going to choose to live a life of love, and I'm not going to be tied to a gun to feel safe and secure. That's not meant to be criticism. It's just how this one person chose to do it. We're each free to make our personal choice. So scripture doesn't seem to forbid owning guns. It does care about what we do with them and how we set laws around them. Our, Consti our Constitution's Second Amendment says this, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, this is, this is an interesting statement, isn't it? Because um, like the Bible, it was written in a his certain historical period. Um, wasn't inspired in the same way by God that the Bible was, but it, it's our Constitution, and it was written in a period of time. I don't know anybody who's a member of a well-regulated militia group. Um, I've never met a member of a militia group. I, I, I assume there are militia groups. I don't know that they're regulated. But anyway, nevertheless, uh, so time, the world has changed a lot. Um, but the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010 ruled that this still applies to Americans having the right to bear arms and keep them. But the Supreme Court also said that this is not an unlimited right. There are restrictions replaced on that right. For example, felons are not able to buy um, a, a gun. Um, even though the Second Amendment promises this. People who are in a mental institution can have their rights taken away. We don't have the right to have fully automatic weapons. We can't have those. We can have semi-automatic weapons. A fully automatic weapon is you hold the trigger down and it fires. Semi-automatic weapon is you pull the trigger. Each time you pull it, it fires. You don't have to cock it first. And so um, there are restrictions placed on gun ownership in this nation, and most of us have agreed that those restrictions have helped to keep us safer. The question is, if we can ever get to having the conversation at a political level, is are there any more things that we can do in order to make it more safe and to limit access to guns for people who will use them in harmful ways? Some people suggest that we should do a better job enforcing the laws that we already have. And I actually agree with that. And I think if we saw what happened on Wednesday with the police delay, we would like these, our laws to be enforced. Um, and of course, that will mean um, funding the ATF and the FBI and the National Information Service that dealers call when someone wants to buy a gun. All of those agencies are grossly underfunded in order to enforce these laws. So that's important. But one more thing, and, and back to Jesus. There's been talk in recent days, and years actually, about whether to raise the age of purchasing a semi-automatic rifle. The semi-automatic rifle is among the most popular guns on the market today. There are two, the two most popular guns on the market today are the semi-automatic rifle and the semi-automatic handgun. Now, these are very popular guns. They're both semi-automatic, but they're also very, very different from one another. They have some essential differences between these two guns. First of all, the amount of ammunition is different. In the semi-automatic handgun, you, the handgun can hold nine rounds, one in the chamber, eight in the magazine. In the rifle, the rifle can hold approximately 30 rounds. 
And so somebody in a very short order can shoot nine rounds or 30 rounds. When it comes to accuracy, the handgun is, is pretty accurate at about 15 feet. If you're a pretty good shot, you're gonna hit your target at 15 feet. The average person, once that target gets to 30 feet, it becomes a little less accurate unless you're an expert. Beyond 30 feet, much, less, uh, much significantly less accurate. The, the rifle has a much longer throw. And so what the average person can hit from 15 feet with a handgun, you can hit at 30 feet with the rifle. But even more than its range and its accuracy, the rifle is much more lethal. The lethality of a gun has to do with the kinetic energy that is produced when the bullet hits a target. A pistol has one-third the kinetic energy of a rifle when it hits its target. So an AR-15 style gun is three more times more powerful when the bullet hits the target because of its speed and mass of the bullets. Consequently then, if you were firing a pistol at somebody and you didn't hit them in the head or the heart, but some other place on the body, they would have an 80% chance of surviving that gunshot wound. But if you do the same thing with one of those rifles, because it does so much more damage when it hits, there's only a 20% chance of survival if you're an adult and much less for a child. For those reasons, people have said during those years when young people are troubled, their brains haven't fully um, formed, they don't always know what to do with their emotions, especially if they want to get revenge on fellow students and they're troubled for whatever reason, maybe it would be better if we raised the age to 21, which is what Florida did after the Parkland shooting. You have to be 21 to buy a margarita. You have to be 21 to buy a Coors Light, but you only have to be 18 in the state of Utah to buy a semi-automatic assault-style rifle with no experience. I'm not suggesting I have the answers, and I certainly don't want to spend too much pulpit time on policies because those conversations are really better had in dialogical settings when you can go, hey, wait, what about this? And I'm not letting you do that to me right now. Um, and so they're better in those kinds of settings. But when I think about what we've been learning in Ephesians, as brothers and sisters who are one in Christ, who care about the world that God so loves with no dividing walls of hostility, I think we can have conversations about these things. It, it hurts us all when something like Uvalde happens. What would Jesus say about the school shootings? There were 15 or 19 uh, kids killed last week. That means that there are churches this morning who have caskets in their worship service with children in them. What would Jesus say about that? I think he would be indignant. I think he would say, I'm mad as hell about it. I think he would be weeping over it. I think he'd say, surely you people are smart enough to come up with a better solution. Surely you can talk with each other and recognize that this should not be happening. But here's the last thing I would say. Jesus devoted his time to people who were made small by society, people who were bullied, marginalized, picked on. And when I read about these kids, kids like Dylan Roof, Nicholas Cruz, Salvador Ramos, 
Not all the shooters were picked on and bullied, but many of them were, and many of them were made to feel like loners or outsiders when they were kids, and that they didn't belong to the regular society or to the world in which they find themselves in. And then as they were growing older, they began to imagine taking revenge on people who hurt them. And then they begin to fixate on heroes or models. And so those two teenagers in Columbine became the models for most of the preceding mass shooters that took place since then. And they said, I want to do what they did, but I want it to be even bigger and better. And I want more fame as a result. And the world can see my pain. And I thought, well, how do you prevent those kids from ever becoming like that? And is it possible that when we have children, do we teach our children to look for those kids who are left out, left alone, picked on and bullied? And how do we care for them? The least of these. Jesus went out of his way to care for the demoniacs. They were like the equivalent of many mentally ill today. He went out of his way to offer love and grace to look for those who were excluded. Well, I remember, I'll never forget when I was in high school and I was part of a, a youth group, very much like ours, awesome, fun youth group. And there were, I was a sophomore and there were seven seniors who were like the coolest kids in the world. I think they still are probably. Um, captains of their soccer and football team, just really great, cool kids. Everyone loved them, wanted to be friends with them and they kind of ran the youth group. They were seniors and I was a sophomore and this freshman um, came in uh, named Chad, and he was, about, uh, he was about eight inches shorter than everybody else. He weighed maybe 90 pounds. And, um, and he had some, some challenges, medical challenges, and he had some emotional challenges, and, and he was kind of quirky and was difficult to relate to. And I will never forget when he came in, when Mark Fiore and Mark Keller and Dean May picked him up and carried him on their shoulders walked him around the youth group and said, this is our buddy, you're not going to mess with him. And, and that's what a youth group is meant to do. That's what a community of faith is meant to do with the outsider, the excluded. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that I love about our church, our multi-generational church. And so this is where I want to wrap up. I think Jesus would say to us, Stop demon to the nation, I should say. Stop demonizing each other and talking past each other. I think you'd say it's, it's fine for some people to own guns in certain circumstances. I think you'd also say that if you're going to live by a gun and let that be your security, then you have failed to understand the faith. And I think you would say you've got to love kids who become killers so that they don't become killers. And I think he'd say, if something bad or tragic happens in your life and to your loved ones, I still have a hold of you and I won't let you go. And I think Paul would then say that since these things matter so much to God, to a God who loves justice and freedom and human life, that the body of Christ should work together in a way that is worthy of our calling and talk with one another truthfully without anger or bitterness uh, but with kindness and tender-heartedness, looking to gra the grace of Jesus as our guide. This is the good news for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Amen.